Thank you for listening to Embassy City Church's audio podcast. This week, Josh Morris shares with us a message titled Faithful Thomas. We pray God speaks to you through this message and his word today. For more information on our church, please visit us at embassycity.com. So, but I, my very first time to ever preach was not that long ago, and this is why I'm traumatized. I went to this little church and... Uh, they, they, I was going to preach there. It was my first time to ever preach. And so I got there and they said, uh, we're going to take you back to a room. We're going to pray over you before the message. And I'm like, great, I could really use some prayer. That'd be awesome. And we're walking back to this room and the guy turns around, and he looks at me and he says, we've recently discovered the Holy Spirit. And I go, wow, where did you find him? And, and uh, so, but I thought it strange a little bit that he had to tell me that. He had to, it was almost as if he was warning me. And my wife, who's here today, uh, Hannah, was there with me and my two young kids. Uh, my, my son is 10 right now uh, and my daughter is 7, but at this time they were, they were younger. And so we got to this church. They took us back to this room. My family comes back there with me. And there were about 12 people uh, in this room and there was a chair, one lone chair just sitting in the middle of the room. And so I gathered that I was supposed to sit in that chair, and uh, there was a guy who was clearly the ringleader there. His name was Jimmy Bob, and uh, it was a small town outside in the country a little bit. And so uh, the, Jimmy Bob tells me, you know, sit in this chair, we're going to gather around you, and we're going to pray for you. So I sat down in this chair, and uh, Jimmy Bob came right over the top of me to, to pray over me. And he was not just into the Holy Spirit, but into like a very aggressive Holy Spirit. I think he was, he started shaking me violently as he was praying for me. And I was just flopping around like this because he's shaking me so violently. And Jimmy Bob spit more spit than any human being should spit whenever they speak. And he happened to be directly above me and it was just raining down on me. I kid you not. It began to pool up on the back of my neck and then drip down. That's how bad it was. And Jimmy is just, he's aggressive, and he's, he's shaking me around. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on, like what is happening. I'm like, fight or flight is kicking in a little bit. I'm worried for my life a little bit. I peek up, I look up a little bit, and just through the crowd of Jimmy Bob's disciples, I can see my son standing against the wall. And we spoke to each other for just a moment. <laughs> With our eyes, we spoke to each other, and he said to me, Daddy, are we going to make it out of here alive? And I said back to him, I'm not quite sure yet. I was scared to death. And then Jimmy Bob, let me get some space here, because this is really what Jimmy Bob did. He jumped back, and his 12 disciples, they jumped back too, and they were like, what's happening? And Jimmy Bob goes, oh, my knees, Jesus, my knees. And he fell to the ground, and he was grabbing his knees. And I thought... He was going to die. I thought something happened. Everybody ran over to him. They're like, God, Jimmy Bob's knees, Lord. We just pray for his knees. I still have no idea to this day why he did that. No clue. There is one theory that we have, though, and that is that we believe that the Holy Spirit lead block tackled him, took him out at the knees, and it just took him down. We don't know. So that's why I'm traumatized. And... Uh, but when, when my friend, Pastor Tim, calls me and says, hey, will you come and speak? Uh, I'm, I'm happy and honored to be here and uh, so, so I- I excited uh, about what God's doing in this place. And uh, so I want to say something to you, and I'd like for you to say something back to me. And maybe, maybe you grew up in a very 
uh, traditional church, so maybe you've heard this before, but I have a very specific reason for doing this. So if you go, oh, I've heard that before, I want you to do this because at the, at the very end of the message, I believe much of this is going to fall into place for you, and there's going to be a realization in, in, in this phrase, in this saying. So I'm going to say, peace be with you, and you're going to say back to me, and also with you. Got it? Is that simple? Peace be with you. Great. So the very last thing that I'm going to say to you at the end of the message is peace be with you. And you don't have to respond, but I believe it's going to make more sense in that moment. And, and, and the reason is what I want to talk to you today about is the account, the story of Thomas. You know, Thomas, many people call him Doubting Thomas and the, the things that he experienced as he was in the week after the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, before he had seen him, many people call him Doubting Thomas because of the profession that he made, I will not believe unless I see Jesus. And, and so I titled the message today, Faithful Thomas, because I want to take that story and look at it from a different perspective. And so we're going to look at the story of Thomas. And what I've done here is I'm going to read to you the whole story so it's going to be a lot of scripture, but I've stacked up all the scripture right here at the beginning. I'll read it to you, and then we'll begin to unpack this story. But I don't, I don't want to take it piece by piece. I want us to really listen to the entirety of the story. So you've probably all heard this story, but I want you to listen as best as you can with fresh ears to the story of Thomas. So I'll be in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19, if you have your Bibles. If not, it'll be on the screen. But let me, let me just go through this story and, 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 and do your best to really focus in on this and, and hear the story, maybe as if you've never heard it before. Starting in verse 19, it says, That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. That's important. They're meeting behind locked doors. Why? Because they were afraid of Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. And this is what he says, peace be with you. And he said, and he spoke, and he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. I'm going to skip down a little bit to verse 24. It says, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told Thomas, we have seen the Lord, but he replied, I won't believe it. This is his declaration. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them. He takes it a step further than everyone else saw the wounds in his hands. He says, I want to put, place my hand on them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Again, he said to them, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer, but believe. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So let's place ourselves in this story for just a moment. Because you see what the disciples and all the Jewish people, what they really wanted and needed so desperately was for a king, a ruler, to come along to overthrow the Roman rule of the time. At that time, all the Jews were under the thumb of Roman rule. They were badly treated under Roman rule. And so they were waiting for justice to be brought to the Romans. They were waiting for a king who would come along and he would, he would then restore order and he would set himself as the king and reign and rule on the earth and bring order and justice and freedom to everyone who needed it. And that's what they were expecting out of this Messiah. And Jesus comes along and he's doing amazing miracles and his teaching is 
blowing everyone away. It's unbelievable the things that he's doing. And they're saying, this is it. This is our Messiah. Look, look at Jesus coming through for us in all the ways that we expect God to come through for us. And so imagine then the, the shock, the surprise, the terror, when just a, a, a short while later, all their hopes and dreams in, embodied in this man, Jesus Christ, are hanging from the cross and die right in front of their eyes. With that then, all of their hopes and dreams die in that moment, and we shouldn't have that difficult of a time relating to that story. We, it shouldn't be very hard for us to understand what they were going through when many times in our lives we've had this idea of who God is and what he is supposed to be for us, and all of that comes shattered, crushing, crashing down when we realize God didn't come through for me the way I expected him to. So here all their hopes and dreams dies hanging from a cross. And so Thomas is there locked away in this basement with the other disciples, Pretty soon, Mary comes in and says, you won't believe it, but I was there at the grave and I saw Jesus. He is alive. He's probably thinking, Thomas is probably thinking, of course, you know, if there's anybody who wants to see Jesus alive, it would be you. Uh, who knows what you really saw? How, how do I know if I can trust you or not? And then Peter comes around. He says, I've seen Jesus too. And Thomas is probably thinking, you know, you, you of all people, denying Christ, you, you would have every motivation to invent this story and try to find redemption after the evil things that you have done. I don't know if I can trust Peter. And then Cleopas comes in, and he claims to not only have seen Jesus, but to have walked with him for eight miles on a road to Emmaus, and then to have sat down with him and broke bread with him at dinner. Thomas is probably thinking, this is, this is crazy. Why would Jesus show up way over there? It doesn't make any sense to me. And so Thomas wallowing in his self-pity and all of these things. And, and, and he's, you know, best way I can describe it to you is he, at this point, Thomas got all emo. That, that's, what he, that's the best way I can describe it to you. And he was like, guys, I'm out of here. I'm getting out of here. And he flipped up his hoodie and he went walking down the street, pouting a little bit. And so Thomas is walking around. He's thinking, God, I don't understand, uh, you know, what is going on. I, I, don't, I don't understand if I could just see you and if I could experience you in this moment in my life, then then that would be so great. And so Thomas comes back to the room, and immediately when he walks in, the disciples pounce on him, and they're like, you won't believe it, but we literally saw Jesus. He was right here in this room. That also shouldn't be too hard for us to relate to. How many times have we sat in church and looked around and seen all these people having a spiritual encounter with Christ, but we're not experiencing it for ourselves? We say, Jesus, you know you know what I was going through. You heard my cries out when I was walking on the street. You knew what I needed most, and yet you showed up for everyone else and not me. You showed up, and everyone got to see you, and you, you of all people should know when I'm there and when I'm not there. And you of all the times that you could have shown up, you showed up the one time that I wasn't there. And in this rejection and this pain that Thomas is feeling, he makes this statement. He says, no, I will not believe unless I myself can place my hands in his hands and in his side and see him for myself. And Thomas makes this declaration. This is what I need. The, the amazing part of the story is that when Jesus shows up, he already knows Thomas's needs and he gives him exactly what he asked for. He knows exactly what Thomas needed and he said, He's, Jesus initiated that conversation. Here, Thomas, place your hands here. He knew exactly what Thomas had asked for. And so we look at this story 
And it's easy to understand maybe why people would call Thomas Doubting Thomas. This is the name that he has had for, for many years now. People refer to him as Doubting Thomas. But I think we actually need to reevaluate what Thomas was really going through. Place ourselves, maybe not be so high and mighty for a moment, place ourselves in his shoes and understand that what he was going through was extremely difficult. And then even evaluate what it was that was going on in this time and what he was experiencing and find ourselves in that story. So Thomas makes this declaration bravely, and, and I think one, one of the things that's interesting about even the fact that we call him Doubting Thomas is we act like, oh, only Thomas had this crisis of faith, and poor Thomas, I can't believe he was so weak in faith. Let's remember where the rest of the disciples were, hiding in a locked basement somewhere. It's not like they were out preaching the gospel, you know, and, you know, Thomas, oh, he's just back there pouting. They were hiding in fear. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't have their, all their dreams and their hopes had been lost in the death of Jesus Christ, but they were resurrected in his resurrection. And so we want to look closely at this story and see what we can learn from this. The first thing that I think is admirable, and, and, and this might sound strange, but I think it's admirable in the way that Thomas dealt with what he was going through. But I, I believe very firmly that this is a part of every person's walk in their faith with God. But the first thing that I think we can admire about Thomas and the way that he walked through this was his doubt. I, I think, honestly, I think his doubt was admirable in this moment. I think doubt is, is an area that, that Christians have wrong today. We, we've wrongly evaluated the role of doubt within our lives. And so I want to go through that a little bit. You know, I had, I had in my own life, I had a, a crisis of, of faith. Um, and I'll tell you about it. I, I think it's exactly like Thomas's crisis of faith. Um, and so when I was about uh, 12 years old, uh, I would go to my grandparents' house, and, and me and my dad and my brother, we grew up just hunting together all the time. And there was a very special season at my grandparents' house where you could go hunting and for deer, and the, this season was a junior season only. So it was only for certain age groups, and we'd be out there before anybody else was hunting, and so we looked forward to this time every year. We were at my grandparents' house, and the next day was the opening day of junior season, and so we were so excited. I told my brother, I said, James, I don't want to mess this up, all right? This is our first time, just you and me going out hunting. I don't want to mess this up. He's three years younger than me, so he's a little bit younger than me. I said, I just, you know, we got we to gotta do this right. He goes, I agree. So I said, however early we normally wake up, let's set our alarm for one hour earlier than what we normally wake up. And he was like, yeah, that's perfect. So we did that, and then my grandfather walked in. He was like, hey, just want to let you guys know, tonight is daylight saving time. So we were like, oh, no. And it was in the fall, so technically it falls back, but we didn't know whether it goes forward or backwards. You know, I'm like literally like 11 or 12 years old trying to figure this out. And so I said, well, you know, if, we, if it's supposed to go one way and we go the other way, then we'll be off by two hours, and we could be late if it goes the opposite direction of where we think it goes. So let's move the clock back two hours. So we were already going to save an hour, and we moved the clock back two hours, and we set our alarm for one hour earlier. We forgot about that little part. So I swear to you, it felt like I'd been asleep for 15 minutes whenever my alarm went off. So we woke up, and we're like, well, you know, it's time. You know, so we get, we, we get over to the place where we're going to hunt, and we sit down, and we're, we're sitting there, and, you know, whenever my dad would take us hunting, we'd be there exactly 30 minutes before the sun comes up. That's the best time to get there. So our internal clock told us, in 30 minutes, the sun will come up. 30 minutes went by, no sun. One hour went by, no sun. 
An hour and a half went by, no son. I'll, I'll go ahead and skip to the end of the story, which you'll understand if you grew up in, in church as a child, especially like growing up in the 80s. Uh, the one thing that every child growing up in the 80s was fearful of was the rapture, you know? So we literally thought the rapture happened and we got left behind. Like, honestly, we really thought that. We started like a prayer service and a worship service there in the, in the middle of nowhere in the dark, you know? We were just hoping that Jesus would maybe swing back around and pick us up on his way out. We were scared to death. And uh, anyways, that's my crisis of faith. Exactly like Thomas's, you know, exactly the same thing. But the truth is that when the, the nature of our reality changes, that is when doubt creeps in. Whenever something as consistent as the sunrise doesn't take place when we think it does, when we think it is supposed to, that is when doubt begins to creep in. And the nature of our reality for every single one of us has been changed at some point or another. It may be that the, the, the person, the spouse that you have invested 20 years with, you find out one day has had a, an affair for, for years in your marriage, and, and your whole world, what you thought was so stable underneath you, falls out from underneath you, and you go into the pit. You go into this time of, of so much doubt. Everything that I believed, everything that I thought that I knew gets called into question. This is not something that you should actively avoid. It is a part of life. It's a part of your Christianity. It's a part of you connecting with God. And as Christians, we've been so fearful of doubt entering into our lives in any way that we, we push it aside, we push it away. You know, they discovered whenever they were trying to stop any type of forest fire, they're saving the redwoods, and there any forest fire at all, they were trying to stop it and squelch it and manage it, and, and then the trees themselves started getting unhealthy and dying. And what they realized was that the fire has a purpose. The fire wasn't strong enough to destroy a tree that large and stable, but it was strong enough to come through and destroy all the little things that were sucking the life out of those trees. And we're called sometimes to go through that fire, not, not to try to push it off. And what they discovered was the more we push off the natural occurrence of fires that happens from lightning coming down, striking the earth, it starts a fire, and it begins this pruning process. And the more we stop that from happening, the more tender there is to go up in flames whenever it all goes bad. And so the more you push away the thoughts that you've had, the more you pile up the tender for a destructive fire. The more you allow these things to pile up, and then it becomes an entire crisis of faith when we could have managed it much better by asking questions, and church ought to be the safest place for you to walk through doubt. It, many times, church is the, the, the place that we're most fearful to walk through doubt. It ought to be the only place in the world where it's absolutely safe to ask whatever question it is that you want to ask. So I admire Thomas for going into this time of doubt. I, I, I had this question when I was looking through this. I thought, is doubt a sin? I mean, really, when we look at this, we look at it with so much shame and condemnation towards this, this weakness of faith is the way that we would describe it in this doubt. And so I wondered this. I thought, is, was this a sin? Is this a sin that Thomas entered into? And, and the only thing that came to my mind in that moment is it can't be a sin. I, I, would, I don't know of any other time in Scripture where Jesus comes along and gives the person exactly what they asked for while they were in sin. It wouldn't make any sense that Jesus would come along and be like, hey, your doubt was a sin, and here you go. Let me answer all of your questions. It wouldn't make sense to me that that's the way that it would, it would happen. I, I can't see a scenario where doubt is a sin. And, and, and in fact, 
as I look at it closer, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that doubt is actually a necessary ingredient in our faith. It, it, it has to be. It, how could you have faith if doubt didn't exist anywhere? If you were absolutely certain about your faith, it wouldn't actually be called faith at that point. It would be called what you already know and understand, but the, the point is that there must be doubt somewhere in order for us to have faith to believe. Doubt, doubt is this necessary ingredient. And, and I think we're all gathered here in church because in, in a general sense, we definitely believe that there is a God, that he created this earth, and, and we agree on those things. But the truth is that there are thousands of little doubts that will come up throughout our journey of faith. And the more we push it away, the more we refuse to deal with it, the worse it gets. And so you've seen this. You've seen somebody who you thought was stable and everything was good and their marriage looked good. And one day they flip out, they leave the church, they divorce their spouse, they're just gone completely. And you wonder what happened when they were dealing with these things over and over again. And this community could have walked through that with them. But we see so many lives ruined because we're afraid of this subject of doubt. We're terrified of it. And the truth is that it's not a sin, a requirement of faith, a necessary ingredient is doubt. Atheism is a, a form of faith also, if you think about it. Atheism still is a, a form of faith in that we don't know everything, and so there has to be a level of faith. And the truth is that you employ a level of faith in every single part of your life, no matter what. Whether you believe in God or whether you don't, you always employ a level of faith. You, you, every day you get in your car, that's a step of faith. Faith that everyone around you is going to stay in their lane and do what they're supposed to. No one's going to, to, to crash into you. You every single day have to employ faith. If you, after this service, go out to eat at a restaurant, that's a level of faith. You didn't prepare that food yourself. You don't know where it came from. You don't know who's preparing it. It's faith. Every single person develops this faith that they, they, they begin to, to, to have to uh, in order to operate. They have to have this faith that, that, that they can step out and that they can live their life. And, and, and so every single person employs this. And, and, and life is this delicate balance between faith and doubt. You, you ought to understand the, the balance and be able to walk within that and work with those things. And so I, I don't believe that doubt is a sin, but I'll tell you this, I believe certainty can be. I, I believe certainty can be a sin in our lives. You see, think of the statement that says, well, I've never doubted. I've never had any doubt at all. I've always had a strong faith. I've always believed. I've never really questioned God. I've always believed. Who, who, who's the subject of that sentence? It's you. Who is the provider of your faith in that sentence? It's you. You see, in that moment, are you worshiping a, a, a God, a, a creator, a, a being that, that loves you? Are you worshiping that God, or are you just worshiping your own faith in that God? See, in this time, our certainty can become an idol to us. And we say, well, I, I've never questioned, I've never worried or, or doubted in this. The subject of that sentence is you. The provider of your faith is you. And the one you are worshiping is you. We've got to be so careful about the way that we interact with certainty in our lives. You see, certainty causes wars, and, and, and certainty causes racism. A certainty that I'm right, and so I must fight in order to, to maintain my correctness, a certainty that I'm so good that other people that don't, 
don't, don't match up to my qualifications, aren't as good as I am. This certainty causes hatred and war and violence in, in, in the world. It, certainty can be so dangerous in our lives. I, I, I'm, I'm to the place now where I believe that I, I don't think it's very possible for us to be certain on anything. Not anything. And you go, how could that be? I mean, I'm certain that the ground that I'm standing on is stable and that I'm not going to fall through it. The truth is, if you were absolutely certain on anything, no matter what it is, if you were absolutely certain, that would mean that no new information could come along that would change what you believe about that thing. You might as well be God. If, that, if, you can, if your belief cannot be changed, you are God. And so it, we've gotten into this place as, as, a, as a, a Christian group where we worship our own certainty and our own faith, and the truth is that certainty ought to be treated very, very cautiously. It's very dangerous in our lives. Uncertainty is the root of all progress and growth. Anytime you are uncertain about something, that means that you are willing to grow and to expand your knowledge on that subject. The moment you become certain about your faith, you stop growing in your faith. The moment you become certain, you push out the voice that says, I must strive to know more, to, to, to learn more, to grow more in this area. We cannot learn anything without first not knowing something. The more you admit that you don't know, the more, you, uh, are, are, the more opportunities you have to learn. You see, uh, I, I believed, I was certain about a lot of things when I was a kid. Um, I was certain about a ton of things. And then I, I, got, I gained new knowledge and uh, now I look back on those things that I was certain on, and I think they're ridiculous. I'll give you a few examples of these. I believed, honestly, very seriously when I was a kid, that if I sneezed with my eyes open, that my eyeballs would pop out. <laughs> and I'd have to go find them and put them back in. I honestly believe this. I thought that if I looked cross-eyed, my eyes would stay that way. So even if someone's like, you got some on your... I wouldn't even look. I'd be like, no, I'm not doing it. I don't want to go cross-eyed. I thought that I could dig to China, and even worse than that, I thought I actually almost made it one time. I was like, yeah, I think I'm pretty close here, you know? I thought that, uh, I thought that if you had a, that I thought that Washington, D.C. was actually named Washington, B.C., and I thought I had to have a time machine to go back there. I really genuinely thought that. And then I thought that whenever someone said they were going carpooling, I thought that there was actually a pool in their car, and I was very jealous of that. And then, and then I got to be a teenager, and my beliefs got even worse. Like, I thought that Nickelback was a good band, and I was like, that was stupid. That was stupid. I'm embarrassed. I'm real embarrassed about it. I want you to contrast for just a moment. Just contrast this for just a moment. The Pharisees, they were very certain in their faith. They knew the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They knew it front to back. They memorized it. Have you ever memorized the first five books of the Bible? I mean, imagine how difficult this is. So they knew the word very well. They had memorized the first five books of the Bible, yet Jesus called them dead, dry bones, whitewashed tombs with dead, dry bones inside them. So contrast, just for a moment, here's the people who knew so much and had so much certainty about their faith. Over here, you have the disciples who literally fumbled their way through everything that they did with Jesus Christ. If you watch how much they messed up and how bad their faith was and how much they struggled through the things that they went through, even in the situation that I'm talking about, them hiding in the basement, believing that all of their dreams have been shattered, you watch the, the difficulty the struggle that they went through in their faith. And so you contrast then, here are the Pharisees who knew all this stuff and had so much certainty, and you contrast it to the disciples. Who was it that was actually walking with Jesus every day of their lives? 
it was the disciples. The ones who were closest to Jesus were the ones who were struggling with their faith the most. So we've got to be able then to give ourselves permission to deal with these things. I'll just leave you on this topic with this verse right here in the book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 22. It says, tells Christians, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. When someone in the church is doubting, it's not our opportunity to make them feel stupid for their beliefs or to, to, to push them down. It is our opportunity to come alongside those and love them and treat them with grace and kindness exactly the way we would want to be treated if we were struggling through that same thing. The second thing that I think is admirable in the way that, that Thomas struggled with his faith is the desire, the desire that he had. You see, uh, Thomas wasn't saying, I want to disprove God because I want to cause destruction and evil on the earth. Really what he was saying, if you listen to the words that what he was saying, he was crying out for his own experience with God. He wanted his own thing that he could say, this is mine. I, I believe in this so strongly because I have experienced this. Look at the, the I'm going to go back to, we read this in just a moment. It's in John chapter 20, verse 24. But I, wanna, I want you to see the desire that he has in this moment. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed Twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my finger into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. He has this desperate desire to have an experience where he doesn't only just see Jesus, but where he touches Jesus and Jesus touches him. See, this desire, as we walk through our, the experiences that we're going through, the desire is necessary. I need an experience with Christ. Whenever you're dealing with doubt, if your desire is to have a profound and real encounter with Christ, then you are in the right place. You are in a place where, you see, my, my faith in Christ as I was growing up was sadly far too similar to a child's belief in Santa Claus. If you think about a child's belief in Santa Claus, you, you realize that there are a couple things that happen. For, for one, an authority in their lives, a parent, tells them Santa Claus is real. So someone that they trust and believe says, hey, Santa Claus is real, so they go, okay, well, then there's evidence that, that supports that. The cookies have been eaten and the, the milk has been drunk and the presents are there and, and there's evidence to support these things. And then, then they have the, their peers all confirm it. They go to school and all their friends go, yeah, we believe in Santa Claus too. And so all, all these things line up for a faith, but a faith that is extremely fragile. And my faith in Christ was, was not too dissimilar from that. Somebody, an authority, my parents, my pastor, as I was growing up, had told me that Jesus Christ was real, that he died for our sins. And then I was seeing evidence of that by being in the church and watching the healings and the miracles that were taking place and watching people have a real encounter with God. And, and so I was seeing that being confirmed in evidence, and my peers were confirming that. I was growing up in a Christian community. Everyone was saying, yeah, of course we believe in Jesus. And so I had this very shallow faith where I depended on these outside forces in order for me to believe in God. And then there became a breaking point in my life where I said, you know what? I've had enough of that. I need my own experience with God. I need something that I can stand on and go, you know what? I had an encounter with God. Not I've seen people have it. I had this. That's the desire that Thomas had. We need that same desire to say, I want a personal experience with God. The third thing that I think we can really admire in, in, in what Thomas went through is the declaration that he made. Thomas makes a declaration you see, uh, Thomas, Thomas's declaration that he will not believe unless he touches uh, Jesus and, and sees him, 
then led to the experience that he had, this desire that he had. He was met with that whenever he got to encounter Jesus Christ. And then what we may not know or realize about Thomas is that that, the strength of that experience that he had with Jesus Christ gave him the strength that he needed to then go declare the goodness of the gospel over nearly half of the earth. Thomas became such an, an incredible man of God that because of this experience, he was able to, to go out and to then preach the gospel over, over nearly half the earth. It's unbelievable what Thomas was able to accomplish. He, he went and, and took the, the gospel to, to, to so many different cultures. It's even been said that, that Thomas went to churches in Palestine, in Mesopotamia, in Parthia, Ethiopia, and India. Church tradition indicates that the Apostle Thomas actually at one point baptized the Magi. It's unbelievable what Thomas was able to do springboarding out of this moment where he had a very real encounter with God. And then he was able, on the strength of that experience that he had himself, to be able to go out and preach the gospel all over. And so when we look at this man, Thomas, and we say, oh, the doubt that he experienced, let me read to you uh, what uh, St. John Chrysostom said about Thomas. I think it puts it in a perfect light to explain the, 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 the process that Thomas went through. He says, Thomas, being once weaker in faith than the other apostles, toiled through the grace of God more bravely, more zealously. Did it go, did it go out? Okay. More bravely, more zealously, and more tirelessly than them all so that he went preaching over nearly all the earth, not fearing to proclaim the word of God to savage nations. See, actually something really incredible happened, more than we realize whenever Thomas had that experience with Jesus. I want you to remember, Thomas says, I want to place my hand in his side where the wound is, where the spear went into his chest cavity. I want you to remember that when Jesus was hanging from the cross, in order to, to assure that he was dead, they took a spear and they sent it into his chest cavity. And it came up through his side and it pierced his heart because water and blood both came out. And so they knew then that the spear had, had pierced his heart. So they knew this, and they knew that the, the spear had gone up into his chest cavity, and that was death, certain death. And so Thomas says, I want to place my hand in his side, in his chest cavity where the spear entered that was the death sentence to Jesus. And, and that's how we knew for sure that he was dead, and that's why the resurrection means so much. That's, it's because of Thomas, really, that we know that Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. Because everything that we had seen before that was people said that they saw Jesus. But Thomas said, I want to take it a step further. I want to touch him. And it's because of Thomas that we know that Jesus bodily resurrected instead of spiritually resurrecting. It's because of Thomas that he was so brave enough to ask for that, that we know that today. But think of the, 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 the depth of this. He says, I want to touch his chest where the spear went in. I don't believe this is ironic at all. I genuinely believe that this is what gave Thomas the strength and the ability to go out from this place. But if you know anything about Thomas, Thomas was martyred for his faith. He was preaching the gospel and someone killed him. And the way that he was killed was that he took a spear to the chest. 
And I, I can't know what was going on in Thomas's mind, but I can only imagine that he looked down in that moment and saw the spear in his chest, and he realized in that moment that he was going to die. And I can't help but think that he probably thought back to that moment. And he had a hope that there would be a resurrection for him because he had seen the resurrected Christ. And he had touched his side where the spear went in, and he could look at that spear, and he could be honored in that moment to go out in a similar way as Jesus Christ and know that his faith was strong and that there was a resurrection that he could believe in. Whatever it is that you've been going through, if you will dig in and have your own experience with Jesus Christ, it will give you a faith so strong that you are willing to pick up your own cross to go through whatever it is that you have to go through in your life. Because it is in the strength and the power of his death and his resurrection that we put our hope in. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me, if you will. And we're going to pray, and, and the prayer team is going to come forward. There's going to be an opportunity for you to come forward and receive prayer, and we want you to do that. You might need prayer for an area of your faith, your family, your finances, your job, your health, whatever it is. Whatever it is, we want to pray with you today, whatever your prayer need is. But maybe also you've been dealing with some doubt and struggling through some things, and, and, and maybe you're looking for that experience with Christ. Let me tell you something. The Bible says that wherever two or three are gathered together, he is there in, the, in their midst. So why don't you gather with someone in prayer? Why don't you, two or three people, gather together in prayer today? Let him be in your midst and pray together and agree that you will have your own real encounter with Jesus Christ, one that gives you a faith so strong that you can't help but to go out and declare it. You can't help but to go out and to tell others about the experience that you've had with God. And if that's you, if you've been experiencing doubt, if you've been through this, you've been experiencing this and, and struggling through this, I, I want to say what Jesus said to Thomas, to you right now. I want you to hear this as his words. Maybe you've been beating yourself up about the doubt that you have experienced or that you've gone through. I want you to hear what Jesus says to you today. Peace be with you. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no condemnation. Jesus comes to you today and he says, peace be with you. So, Lord, we pray for that right now, that your peace would rest on us, or that it would be the peace that the Bible describes as being the peace that passes all understanding. May peace enter this room right now. May peace enter the households of the people who are needing that today. Lord, let your peace wash over us. Let your grace Lord, hit us like a tidal wave today. Because we know and love and accept your forgiveness, your guidance. Lord, we know that the Spirit leads us into all truth. And so, Lord, we ask you for truth today. You would bring truth. So, Lord, we pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more about Embassy City Church, please visit us at embassycity.com and follow us on social media at Embassy Irving.